Amen. All right, get your Bibles out. If you've got your Bibles, we're encouraging you to mark them up. If you've got your own Bible, um, if you steal a Bible, you can mark that one up too. That's fine. But if you've got your own Bible, we're going to be going through the, N, uh, through the NLT, the New Living Translation. But if you've got an NIV or an ESV, that's totally cool too. I want you to mark it up, write questions, write notes in it. Um, if you don't own a Bible on your way out, you can do one of two things. You can get a free Bible over, over in the Mission Merch area. Just snag it, walk away. We won't charge you for it. We want you to have a Bible of your own. Um, if you want a Bible that like I'm going through, that's the NLT that has places for taking notes. This is how has been really helpful for me to have notes in here, not only in this, but also like not only in the sermons, but also as we're going through and reading through John. If, you, uh, if you're just brand new to the whole series and you haven't been reading in John, not too late to jump into it. On your way out, there's bookmarks. And I wanna encourage you to take one, but more than take one, I want you to take a picture of one. Because honestly, if you're anything like me, you put something like that in your pocket and it becomes pocket lint in 30 hours or less. And you lose it, you're like, oh, I have no idea where to read. Just take a picture of it, you'll have it on your phone. But truthfully, we're only four chapters in. And so each one of these chapters is like four minutes reading time for a slow reader like me. And so you could totally catch up. I'd love for you guys to get in on that. We wanna read through every single word of John. And then we're gonna be preaching as we go along, as we're covering the, what's this amazing book about who Jesus is and following him in everyday life. All right, so let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. This is again, John the disciple, not John the Baptist who's recording this, he's the youngest of the disciples. He's the one that would have been in Marco Miramontes' youth group. He would be an evergreen kid um, in the youth group of Jesus. And this is what he gets a chance to record, the eyewitness account of what he saw. Chapter four, verse one. Jesus, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, John the baptizer. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had gone, he had, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the, the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because all of his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking with, you would, not, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. 
Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me this, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could, this possi- could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Not everyone in this room, and certainly maybe not everyone who's watching, is a Christian who would identify as a Christ follower. Some of you in this room are here because you're like, seriously, I'm a happy agnostic, or I'm a friendly atheist, and I just have questions. I'm dating someone that goes here, or I'm curious, and so I decided just, you know, on a fluke, it's such a warm day, why not go to church? And if that's you, if you're someone that's an agnostic or an atheist or you're not yet convinced, I'm so glad that you're here. We want you to be here. We want this to be a place where you could ask hard questions, where you could understand more and more about whether or not Jesus is in fact who we believe he is. And we want this to be a safe place for you to do that. But for those of you who are a Christian, whether you're watching at home or you're here, you would identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. You most likely have uttered this sentence. I shouldn't or I couldn't share my faith because, and you finish that sentence. I shouldn't or I couldn't share my faith because, and I want you just to think individually and personally and privately, how have you finished that sentence? Got it? Just want you to think about that. I want you to lock that in. All of us have, I've I've finished the sentence. How have you finished that sentence? I shouldn't or I couldn't share my faith because. Now with that bit of knowledge that you have right now that you've got locked in, I want you to hear me very clearly on this. Whatever, whatever you would finish that sentence with is likely the most powerful part of your testimony. Whatever you would finish that sentence with, whatever you look as as the thing that's handicapping you, from sharing your faith. Whatever you would look as the thing that, that, that this is the excuse that I shouldn't. This is the reason I probably wouldn't. Whatever that is, based on this passage that we're studying today, is likely the most powerful part of your testimony. You are sharing the truth of God. This is like one of the most important messages of all time. And a lot of people share it and everyone's different. But whatever you individually would finish that sentence with is likely the 
most powerful part of your testimony. By the end of the study of this passage with the woman at the well, I hope you see that. Today we're going to be talking about with regarding to sharing our faith, the who of sharing our faith, the what, the why, and the when, all of which are sourced from this passage. And so let's start off with, first off, with the who. Who are we sharing with? Like, who should we share our faith with? And that might be an obvious to you, but it's not an obvious in everyday life. Like, honestly, if it's like Wednesday at school, or if it's Wednesday at work, or if it's Wednesday in your house, you're around people that don't know Jesus, that's a tough thing to figure out. Like, should I share with them or not? And we have in this passage in verse four through seven that we just read, it says this, talking, just for context, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he's getting popular. And usually getting popular is not a problem. Like if, you, if we got popular in our circles, we'd be like, hmm, well done. But Jesus is like, this is not good because this is going to fast forward the timeline of people picking up on the fact that I'm the Messiah. And I'm not ready to out myself as the Messiah yet because as soon as I do that, I'm gonna get crucified. That's coming, that needs to happen, but there's a lot of work that needs to happen first. And so Jesus is front-loading the fact like, okay, it's getting hot in Jerusalem, people are getting more popular, and because I'm getting more popular, I'm becoming a threat to two groups of people, those in politics and those in religion. Politics, politically speaking, if he looks like the Messiah, he looks like a revolutionary. And Rome's got to deal with that. And, that's, and they, they're great at dealing with that. Rome is awesome at killing off revolutionaries because no one competes with Caesar. Boom. And so like, that's one group. But as, because he's a religious figure as a rabbi, he becomes a threat to the political establishment or the, the religious establishment, the, political elite, or the religious elite. So it's the political and the religious elite that would look at Jesus as a big enough threat to snuff him out. And so what he ends up doing is saying, okay, we got to get out of Dodge. We got to get out of Jerusalem. But it, the verse four says this. So in order to do that, he had to go through Samaria on the way. No, he didn't. But we'll get to that in just a second. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, was sat wearily beside the well about what time? Noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me something to drink. So if you look at the map, and you can kind of, I mean, you're seeing things that you, you can pick up from the news. See the Gaza Strip there on the bottom left-hand corner of Israel, the West Bank. See Jerusalem's right there. If you follow up north of the West Bank, you see that little lake up there. It's the Sea of Galilee. And if you've ever gone on a trip with the church, you know that we basically, we bus around all those areas. But back then, like in the first century, all of the automobiles didn't work. And so what they had to do is they had to find some way to get around. And what most people had to do to get around was to walk. They hiked it. And so if you're going from Jerusalem, let's zoom in on this map. If you're going from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee, the fastest route was that. And that was a 90-mile hike. That's like a three, four-day hike that, that you're, you're doing, okay? You're, it's a multiple, it's massively long. But the problem is that most people in Jewish circles, well, not most people, people in Jewish circles, in Jesus's sphere of influence, would not take that path. Not because it goes through the West Bank, but because it goes through Samaria. Now, there's a reason why they wouldn't go through there. In 722 BC, in the Old Testament, it talks about how Assyria comes in to the Northern Kingdom and deports out all the people in the Northern Kingdom. All the Israelites from the Northern Kingdom, boom, they're gone and they're spread into, into the Persian Empire. 
Assyria then, with this empty section of real estate, as they're conquering more countries, they would take the displaced people from those countries and guess where they deposited them? In this place that ultimately got, got called Samaria. Boom. Now all of a sudden, the people that were deported out, they had to leave their homes. The people that are coming in are people that were foreigners from all these different areas that got taken over by the, the terrible, toxic, massively violent Assyrian Empire. And they got deposited there. And then they had to build a new life. And they bring with them their religion, they bring with them their politics, and they're kind of like this amalgamation of a new group of people. Fast forward a little over 100 years, right into the 500s, and all of a sudden, you have those Israelites being allowed to come back and return to their homeland. And they get to their homeland, and they want to return to their homes, but guess what? They can't. Because someone has moved in. The, the land that their family had for a long time, somebody had moved in. And, and establish a whole new life. And it's like, not only me, it's not only my dad or my grandparents, my grandparents. Like, we've got a lot of family history here. Like, who are you to come back here and say that we got to go? We didn't choose to come here, but this is our home now. And we got a religion now. And we set up a, we set up a, a temple here now. On top of that, Samaritans decided to also be super cool with the Greeks. And so what they did was they're like, you know what? We have this temple to the one true God, but you know what? Let's also double it as a temple to Zeus. And so like, it was this weird place where they, they, so if you're an Israelite, you would not want to go that path. You do not want to go there, not just because it's dangerous, it's sketchy for you, but on top of that, you hate these people. You hate them politically, you hate them racially, you hate, their, you hate them religiously, religiously, politically, every, everything, every way you can, Eth ethnically, they're wrong. They shouldn't be there. They're in your home and you hate them. And so if you are a Jewish Israelite, what you do is this, instead of going through that route, you tack on 80 miles to your path. Now, I don't know how much you hate somebody, but I don't hate anyone enough to walk 80 miles in my hate. That's a lot of miles. That's a lot of hate. But they would go ahead and they would go 170 miles to get on up to the Sea of Galilee uh, on this course that was a lot more easy. Oddly enough, if you do a Google search today, like right now, if you wanted to, if you were in Israel and you were in Jerusalem, you're like, I'm starting in Jerusalem, I want to get to the Sea of Galilee. Guess what is, is almost exactly the same route that, they will, that Google Maps will suggest to you? If you're going to avoid the West Bank, this is what you do. It's crazy, but that's, that's normative. And Jesus, in spite of the fact that, that this is the socially, politically, and religiously correct path, it's not the path of Jesus. Jesus chose that path. And this is the thing. He didn't go alone. He brought his youth group with him. Why? Because they're his disciples. And disciples are intended to learn. And so what is Jesus teaching? Jesus is teaching this. I've got something to say. And I need you to know that this is not just for the Jewish Hebrew people. This is not just for Israel's, Israelites. This is for everybody. And so I'm going to take my youth group on a trip that none of their parents would sign the permission slip for. And you got to think about what it was like to be a disciple. As they're going into Samaria, like, Jesus, we're going the wrong way. Like, why are we going through my, my John is the youngest disciple. He's really freaking out. My dad's going to freak out. My dad's going to freak out. My dad's going to freak out. And Peter's like, maybe we should just suggest a different path. But whenever I open my mouth, I realize that I'm an idiot. So I'm not going to be the one to say, John, someone else say it. And so the reality is they're going up to this terrible area. And Jesus gets hungry. And so he stops. And then all of a sudden he comes across who? A woman. Now, there's a lot of things the rabbis did, but one thing the rabbis didn't do is talk to any woman in public that they're not married to. 
uber patriarchal society, and it was looked at as a massive like misstep. So Jesus is breaking every single stinking rule that's out there. And he's talking to this woman who is the wrong race, who is the wrong nationality, who is the wrong religion, and is the wrong gender. And Jesus is just bulldozing right through all those barriers as he's talking with her. And his disciples see it and they're shocked. I love that. I love that. So who are we supposed to share with? We're supposed to share with everyone, regulars and randos. Jesus is communicating this. If you're doing life with someone, you're sharing with them. It's not something you should like plan, like there's this massive event, like we're gonna have a party where I'm gonna finally communicate that I follow Jesus, that I'm trusting in Jesus. It's like, no, it's just like everyday life with regulars and randos. I know this person forever, I'm gonna share with them. Yeah, I'm actually following Jesus now. I just met this person. I work at, at, at this particular uh, place of work and I just met this person. In con- at some point in conversation, soon they're gonna realize that, yeah, I, I actually, like, I'm not just like a religious person. I, I trust Jesus and I, I wanna like follow him with my life. Really? Yeah, for, for real. Who? Regulars and randos, everyone. And Jesus is communicating to his disciples. Then, as much as he's just telling us right now, this is everyone. Whatever reason you would say, I probably shouldn't share my faith with them or this person is most likely the strongest reason for you to share based on Jesus' example. But it's not just who we share with, it's also what we share. What are we supposed to share? In the conversation that Jesus has with this woman, all of a sudden we get to verse 25. And in verse 25, um, in the midst of the conversation, the woman says this, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who's called Christ. Okay, now Messiah means anointed one. It all, and, and the word Christ is the Greek version of that. So again, she's like in a town that's all about the Greek stuff. Like, yay, Zeus. Not yay, Zeus. Yay, sorry. You're the only service that had a chance to hear that. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. In, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach. I know the Mashiach is coming. The one who's called Christ. That's the Greek version. So she's like outing herself. It's like, yeah, we're kind of basically Hebrew and Greek, whatever. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I, I am the Messiah. She knows enough to know that she's been waiting for this Messiah, that the Old Testament scriptures have pointed to this person. Then Jesus says, that's who I am. So what are we supposed to share? Well, what did Jesus share? that Jesus is the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? It means set apart one. The one that's set apart. Like, look, there's a lot of faiths out there. There's a lot of religions out there and they're filled with wonderful people. They're not horrible, dumb, ignorant people because they believe in different religions. That's how they grew up. Every world religion is a way that 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 people group are trying to make sense of the world that they live in, make sense of the problems of the world that exist. These aren't dumb, horrible people for believing different religions, just what they grew up in. But Jesus is set apart from all of them. He is the only way. He's the one who's actually true. He's not the man-made version of what we're all trying to roll off and trying to explain this world. He's set apart. And so if I had five seconds with someone and and they wanted to know what I believe, like, what what do you believe? I would, if I had five seconds, I would simply say this. Sin takes away, Jesus gives back. Sin takes away, Jesus gives back. If I've got five seconds. If I've got 10 seconds, or maybe a little more than 10 seconds, I would start by just simply saying this. What I believe is that sin, my past sin takes away my connection to God, my present purpose, and my future with him. 
That's what sin takes away, my sin. My past sin takes away my connection to God, my present purpose, and my future with him. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus gives back. Jesus goes to my past sins and forgives them to give me a present purpose and a future with him that's secure, that not even I can disqualify myself from. That's the good news based on what he did on the cross. That's, that's, that's the gospel. But the cool thing is, is that, I mean, this woman doesn't even get into that detail. She simply is a witness. Witnesses aren't experts. They just share what they know. And what she knows about Jesus in five seconds is enough to get a movement going in that Samaritan village where many people are coming to believe. So this is basically what I would encourage you as you're on-ramping to this this week. This is what I, w- I would look at it this way. Look at, as far as what you're sharing is, before I surrendered my life to Jesus, when I surrendered my life to Jesus, and since I surrendered my life to Jesus. So let's just think about that. The before, like, some of us, you like grew up in a situation where like before you surrendered your life to Jesus, there was a lot of sketchy stuff that happened. Like sketchy stuff, stuff that you might be like, look, I'd rather not talk about that. But that, that's, that's part of what our life when we get to share is like, yeah, this happened before I surrendered my life to Jesus. Some of you, it was pretty like docile. You grew up in the church. And so it wasn't like you were robbing banks and shooting heroin. And then you met Jesus. It was like, uh, I just kind of like believed this for, since I can remember but, before you, but there was a point where there was a before you surrendered your life to Jesus. What about the woman? The woman at the well, what, what's her story? Before she surrendered her life to Jesus, she's six dudes in. She had five marriages, and we don't have the details on it, but the context gives us the impression that she's either, she wasn't really married to them or, or had divorced them. We, we're not totally sure. But all we know is that she's basically, men have been in her life. Part of her core identity has been a connection to a man. In a patriarchal society, she's desperate to like be connected to the man. There was no opportunity for her to work on her own. And so like she's just living with a dude right now who's not ready to commit himself to her. And so her whole life has been defined by leaning on men as the the core identity and sustenance and security for her life. When she surrendered her life to Jesus, when did she meet Jesus? At the well. Her story would sound something like this. Before I surrendered my life to Jesus, my life was defined by men and pursuing men. That was everything. And avoiding judgment for that. You wanna know why I come to this well at noon? Nobody comes to wells at noon. There's a time in every single village where women come to draw water and it's not when it's the most hot. They come when the sun is setting, when it's cool. The only reason I come here at noon is to avoid the judgment and the judgmentalism of the other women that are gonna draw water later on in the day. I wasn't looking for Jesus, but apparently he was looking for me. I just met him at, the well, at this well, the same well that I've gone to for all these years. It's, it's important to our people. And, and there's, there's this Jew, rabbi, talking to me. When did you surrender your life to Jesus? For some of you, you've grown up in church. It's been part of your life and part of your life story forever. But when did you surrender? For me, I grew up in church, but it wasn't until I was 13 years old at a camp that I first surrendered my life to Jesus. That I first said, okay, I know what my parents believe. and I've always kind of like just taken it as a given, but now I want, I want Jesus to direct me. I want him to direct my life. And that's my decision, not my mom's decision, not my dad's decision, not my grandma's decision. I want this to be my decision. 
And it was at 13 that that, that, sec, that B section right there started in my life. And so someone could start there, there and then they, they finish off with, since I started my life to Jesus. And this is so important. Because if you became a Christian 50 years ago or five minutes ago, that C-section has got, you got something to say. The woman at the well had something to say. I met Jesus and he told me everything. And she's telling other people because she's like, everything's changed. Things are different now. I think differently. If you became a Christian five days ago, there's something that's shifted in your outlook. Share that. People need to hear that. And so basically it's a before, when, and, and since then that you're sharing with people just as a matter of fact with regulars and randos, okay? But why? Why do we share? We know who we're sharing with, regulars and randos. We know what to share. Jesus is Messiah. He's set apart. I can tell people about before I started my life with Jesus, when, and since then. But why? And this is so cool because after the disciples get back, they are super, super taken aback by the fact that Jesus is talking to this person. They're upset by it. They're offended by it. And Jesus is again teaching them that, look, this is for everybody. And then he gets into this, this conversation where he's like, he's like communicating to them, guys, you don't understand. Do you realize that the fields of people that need to hear this are everywhere and they're ripe? So it's not like I've got to do all this heavy lifting to try to convince them, or I've got to have every answer to every difficult, hard question and every pushback. No, I, all I'm asked to do is just be a witness, just to share what I know. And Jesus is saying, there are so many people out there that just need to hear you say it. Hear you say it, not me say it. Hear you say it in your context, in your world. Jesus is equipping and empowering his disciples to do this. He says, the fields are ready for harvest. And then he says this, this is so cool. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? Why do we share? One word, joy. Not obligation, joy. How many of you have ever played pickleball? It's a cult. It's a cult that started in 1965 in Washington State. And for a long time, that cult just existed in the Pacific Northwest. It didn't get out. But then it just started to spread. And then 2020 happened. And the world lost their mind. And pickleball spread. And from 2021 to 2023, it became the fastest growing sport in the world. In 2022, it became the official sport. Let me just say that again. The official sport of Washington State. Shanahan Lanes, or not Shanahan Lanes, but, but Skateland closed down. What came in? The Church of Pickleball. <laughs> How could a sport that starts in 65, this is not Athens, Greece, a sport that started in 65, how did it spread globally in that in one lifespan? How did that happen? I'll tell you, one word. I've tried this game and I am not an athlete at all. But I tried it and I, I invited friends and we played and we had such a good time. You gotta come. What, what, what is this that we're doing? It's called pickleball. Why? I have no, don't know. I was waiting for the pickles, but nothing ever happened. 
And then that person comes and tries and they didn't die. They actually had a good time. They're like, this is actually good. I'll go buy the paddles. They buy the paddles and they're, now they're inviting. The thing that caused in a lifespan for something that's just a, just a weird hybrid of ping pong and tennis with new and weird rules and a kitchen for whatever reason, a thing that, caught, that was that odd and weird spread globally, not because people had to share it, but because they had joy in it. And Jesus is saying this, the reason we share is joy. We, and, and, but the thing is this, it, it, he's, he's, not, he's saying this both selflessly and selfishly. Selfishly speaking, if you share the news about Jesus with other people, you get joy. Now look, at, I'm a pastor. I've been following, like I said, since I, following Jesus since I surrendered my life to him when I was 13. I can tell you all the ways of following Jesus gives me joy. We could be here for hours. I could be telling you more and more stories about how following Jesus is better than anything else and I get joy from it. But why listen to me when Jesus tells you one thing guaranteed that will give you joy? Jesus said the thing that you're missing out on, you're cheating yourself out on, is sharing sharing the truth about him. Because if you just share your story, you're gonna get joy. Even if it blows up in your face, there's something like, that was weird. Like it didn't go well. But that's what I was, I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Perhaps the reason why you look at your faith and you wonder why is it that I'm not growing? Or why is it that I'm not experiencing any kind of joy in it? It's because you're keeping it to yourself. When Jesus said the very thing that's gonna give you joy, you're not doing. That's selfishly. You get joy from it. Selflessly is I'm going to share because why would I cheat my friend? Why would, who am I to cheat the people that I run into out of joy? Like if I could go through like Jewel and just high five everybody and everyone I high fived, I would, it was guaranteed it was going to make their day. Dude, I'd be high fiving all day long. And that, who wouldn't do that, right? Jesus saying there's joy both for the person who's harvesting and for the harvester because it's leading to eternal life. This is a game changer for us and we get to do this. It's not a have to, it's a get to, it's for joy. Who are we supposed to share with? Regulars and randos, everyone we come in contact with. What are we supposed to share? Jesus is set apart. He's the only way and I put my, I don't have all the answers, but I'm putting my trust in him. Why are we supposed to share? Because of joy. When are we supposed to share? One of the guys on that field trip that his parents would not have signed the permission slip on was Peter. The guy who put his foot in his mouth, who was not a perfect Christian at all, but he put it this way. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if somebody asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. Peter is saying this, if just by living life, people are gonna ask you about what you're doing on the weekend. What are you doing? How do you handle this? How are you going through this incredibly difficult part of your life? And you have an opportunity to give people the reason for your hope. It's going to happen. Unless you shut it down, it will always happen. It's going to happen. It's guaranteed. And you have an opportunity to share or not, to have joy or not, to give joy or not. Which brings us back to that statement that we had in the very beginning. I shouldn't or couldn't share my faith because whatever you would finish that sentence with is likely the most powerful part of your testimony. Let me just share this in closing. Remember what that was for you. If your thing is this, like, look, I don't think I could share my faith because I'm just barely a Christian. Like I've been a Christian for like three months tops. I don't know what I don't know. 
That is the most powerful part of your testimony. Because when you're sharing with someone at school tomorrow and you're like, listen, I honestly, you know me, I, I haven't followed God for a long time. Or you, maybe you don't even know that I follow God because it's been so brief, but I'm actually like, I'm actually wanting to follow Jesus as the leader of my life. I believe that he did what the Bible says he did. I got lots of questions, but you saying to someone that you are a rookie in this is the most powerful part. Well, what if you're like, listen, here, what if I, I'm a Christian, but I've got like, I've got some hard questions. I got doubts. Like, I, I don't know if I could, how do I, how do I know I could trust all the Bible? I've got really hard questions. I believe what I believe about Jesus, but I don't, that is the, perhaps the most powerful part of your testimony. Because when you go to your friends, you could say something along this lines. Listen, you know that I'm a skeptic. Like, I don't believe anything that people tell me at first glance. My mom told me she loved me. And I had to have follow-up questions just to make sure. I'm a skeptic, okay? And in spite of my skepticism, <laughs> I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I believe there's enough about this that's true. That even in my skepticism, even in my doubt, this is a weightier reality than, than the, the fact that Jesus didn't do what scripture says that he did. And you're, that's coming from a skeptic. Your skepticism, your doubt is perhaps the most powerful part. Well, what if you're someone that's like, I've got like a significant past. Like my past is so messed up. I've done so much. Like the best thing I could do, if I want to sell Jesus well, I got to let people know that I've got a put together life. No, you do not. Your sketchy, messed up, backwards, broken life is perhaps the most strong part of your testimony. Because you could say, listen, you know, as my friend, some of what I've done. You don't know the half of it. And none of that has pushed Jesus away from me. None of that has disqualified me from his grace and his love. And it blows me away because anyone else would have kicked me to the curb and a lot of other people have, but he hasn't. What if you're someone that's currently struggling? That is perhaps the most powerful thing that you can share. You and I both know I'm not perfect. Like, remember what I did last week? If anyone should have kicked me to the curb, it was God for the fact that I'm still struggling with some of this stuff. And yet, he hasn't canceled me. What if you're like, okay, well, the way I would finish that sentence is I don't think I could share my faith because I'm afraid of getting canceled. That is perhaps the strongest part of your testimony because when you share, you could say, listen, I'm afraid to even share this because I'm afraid of getting canceled for what I'm about to tell you, that I believe that Jesus is the only way. But I believe in him so strongly that it's worth getting canceled over. I had someone ask me that last night at the service. What if you're afraid of getting canceled? I'm like, that is perhaps the most powerful part of your testimony. She's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But what if, what if they do cancel you? I'm like, then they walk away canceling you, realizing that, that person knew that they were gonna get canceled and they told me that anyway. And that's going to stick in their brain. You think about, how many, think about how many times the Apostle Paul was canceled. And yet we, we're here today because the impact came from that bold move. Church, the last part of this passage, and we're going to close on this, is something that I didn't read to you before. Same chapter, starting in verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. 
This woman went from trying to hide her past to outing herself saying, look, because of Jesus, he knew all about it. He knew it all. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. The thing I love about this church is that so many of you that are adults are here because one of your kids led you here. One of your kids went to Spy Kids, went to the junior high ministry, the high school ministry, and they met Jesus. And they found joy in Jesus and they shared that with you. I love, I love the fact that, that this church is so full of adults that got led here by their kids. That's awesome. I love the fact that it's not just the kids. We got people that would self-identify as old fogies that are rocking the invite. Like they're inviting people, sharing their faith with people. It's so cool. Saturday night service is, is like, has always been a small service. You know what's happening at Saturday night? It's starting to grow because there's people that are like, we're here on Saturday night. We're going to be going here forever. And then they're like, you know what? We work out with these people. Why am I not like tell them about my church? Why am I not telling them about my faith in Jesus? And they started to invite people. And now Saturday service is starting to fill in. It's weird because it's Saturday, but they're going anyway. This, you, you're here because somebody shared with you. Somebody got that joy. And now you get to experience it. Are we positioned ourselves? Are we positioning ourselves to be the sharers that continue to share? Let us be a church that never cheat our world out of that. Never cheat ourselves out of that. The calling that Jesus put on us to share what we know. Amen? Amen. If you could stand. If I could have the people that are prayer, uh, the, our prayer team, if they can come forward. If you're someone that's going through something and you need prayer, we got people up in the front. You guys can go ahead and come out and forward now that have lanyards on. They're going to pray. They'll be willing to pray with you no matter what you're going through. They're there. If you're new to our church and you would like to just meet a pastor because you haven't been connected yet, I'm going to be over in the fireside room with a couple other pastors. I'd love to meet you guys there. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that you help us be the type of people that are walking along this world and in this life and interacting with regulars and randos and sharing what we know, just operating as witnesses, pointing people to you. Lord, I thank you so much in advance for the people in this community who are not walking with you today, who will be this week because some people in this room, some people watching, took your invitation and challenge seriously. And we thank you, Invest, for the joy that's going to come from that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Love you, church. We'll see you next week.